Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning, church. Let's, uh, let's try that again. Good morning, church. Good morning. So as someone fairly new to, to preaching, one of the things that I wasn't quite sure about was what should I say when I first step up behind this pulpit? And so I figured, okay, let's go check out what other preachers do and what is it that they say. And in our context, that person is Michael Crane. And generally, when Michael comes up here, he says, good morning, twice. And I figured that when he says it twice, he must really, really mean it, all right? And in the Malaysian context, when you say things two times or twice, you really, really mean it. For example, if you say, you must wake up morning, morning to go to hike, that means you must wake up really, really early in the morning to go for a hike. Or if you say, um, you really, really have to go to this restaurant to try the chicken rice. What that means is you really, really have to wake up or go to this place to try the chicken rice. And so I figured he must really mean it, or either that, or just by standing in this place, we can probably see some people sleeping or dozing off or not really quite paying attention, and therefore we need to wish good morning twice. But I don't quite see that yet, so we can probably get started here uh, this morning. For those of you that are new, a special uh, welcome to you. My name is Gurpreet, and I'm one of the uh, elders here at Alvis KL, alongside three other brothers, and we're just really glad that you're here with us this morning. Church, over the last eight weeks, we've been looking at the book of uh, 1 John, and together we've learned a lot about what God is communicating and teaching us through these texts from knowing the word of life to walking in the light to Christ being our advocate to the dangers of loving the world to warning against false teachers and other important topics. Last week, we landed on the testing of the spirits. And today we're going to walk further into the book of John and we're going to talk about the text, God is love in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. I think one of the things that is really clear from the text that we read last week about testing the spirits is that in the context of 1 John and also in the context of our church today, there are many voices that influence the way in which we view the world. There's many voices that begin to influence the way that we perceive and look at our own situations. And these voices then go along and impact the way that we make decisions. They start to impact how we live the gospel out and how the gospel is then represented and so, as Michael reminded us last week, that there is this need for us to listen, to test, and to know. Now, having noted the importance of testing the spirits, now we arrive at this peak point, this kind of a crescendo moment where John is going to reveal to us why test the spirits, why is it so important, and why we ought to discern past the noise. So here it is, 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his Son, his only Son, into the world so that we might live through him. 
in this the love of in th and this is love not that we have loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins beloved if we so beloved if god so loved us we also ought to love one another no one has ever seen god if we love one another god abides in us and his love is perfected in us by this we know we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So that, we have con so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For love, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. There are three main points that I would like to emphasize from our text today. First, the source of love. Second, the power to love. And third, the application of love, the source of love. What is love? This is a pretty fairly complex question for all of us, but I believe at some point in our lives, all of us have kind of contemplated or grappled with or wrestled with this question, what is love? Maybe not on a Sunday morning at uh, 11 o'clock or whatever time it is right now, but I'm fairly certain that all of us recognize that within us, there is this desire or this capacity to want to love and want to receive love. I remember in 1995, uh, when I was uh, nine years old, there was a lot of buzz around uh, this Bollywood movie called Dilwale Dilhaniya Le Jayenge, or DDLJ, try, try saying that yourself, <laughs> right? And as a kid who watched Bollywood movies with my family, uh, it was like our family uh, pastime. One day, my mom or dad, I can't really remember who, came into the house and said, hey, let's go watch this movie uh, in the theaters. And I remember feeling really excited. I was really stoked. I just you know, couldn't wait to go. And so this movie around, uh, revolves around this main character called Raj. Raj is, he's laid back, he's funny, he's carefree, sometimes even really careless. And he falls in love with this girl called Simran. And she's really simple and obedient, focused, and really smart. But she comes from a family where her dad's really strict. So she's really used to living in this environment where there's a lot of rules and really regimented the way that she lived her life because there's a lot of house protocols that she had to abide by. And so Raj and Simran, who were both uh, residing in London, then decided to go to Zurich uh, on separate trips with separate group of friends and they happened to bump into each other. And uh, Raj kind of likes Simran, so he kind of persistently pursues her. And over time, Simran decides to welcome his, advancement, his advances and they both uh, fall in love. But when Simran's parents find out uh, they're not really happy with this relationship. So they oppose this relationship. And her dad quits his job in the gas station, sells the house, 
and takes the whole family back uh, to India to get Simran married in an arranged marriage. And that's in the Indian context, if you don't know already, uh, one of the ways, at least traditionally, maybe even today, uh, how we deal with wayward youth living, just get them married, they'll get responsible and they'll figure out life from their own. So long story short, uh, Raj then finds his way back into the picture. He overcomes a whole bunch of uh, obstacles. He befriends the family uh, uh, as a stranger. And later he gets discovered toward, uh, towards the end of the movie. And he gets beat up by 30 guys, but miraculously he still survives. And he gets put on the train because the train's gonna leave and go back to his village. Uh, and as the train moves, Simran's uh, standing at the platform with her dad and her whole family, and she tries to run after the train. So her dad grips her hand and holds her hand. And Simran then kind of begs and pleads to her dad, dad, let me go, let me go. And she kept pleading and begging and begging and begging. And then there's this dramatic moment where her dad just lets her hand go. And this is what he says. He says, Ja, Simran, Ja. Which means go, Simran, go, go live your life. And the lovers unite, so she runs and he's hanging on to the side of the train and puts his hand out and it's a classic scene and pulls her in and they embrace. And that whole theater went nuts. They were crazy. Everybody was clapping hands. Everybody was celebrating. There was not a single dry eye in that movie theater. And I remember vividly as I was walking back to the car with my parents and my sister, I intentionally took 10, 10 steps back because I still had tears in my eyes and I was still trying to deal with all the emotion in the movie. Now, why am I telling you uh, this elaborate story on this movie and in some ways really ruining this uh, really good movie for you, <laughs> all right? It's because for uh, two thirds of my life, for two thirds of my life, this movie really defined what love was for me. Something really changed in me uh, that, that day. And I started to believe that this is how love is modeled, that this is how love is meant to be lived out. And that the only love that was worth pursuing was this romantic love. And that the pursuit of romantic love would give me or would be the ultimate source of fulfillment. But what I've come to realize going from the age of nine to my day in college is that I needed a new definition of love. I needed a, a new reference point, one which can expand the definition of love beyond just romantic love. One word that would just not promise to give and then end up taking and ultimately becoming unsustainable. So let's look at how God's word defines love from our text today. First John chapter four, verses seven to 10. Beloved, let us love one another for, for what? For love is from God. God is the source of love. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, here it is again, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. What scripture means when it says God is love, it's not so much love in its essence or its expression like the movie I was describing, but that he is love himself, expressed and made manifest in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent so that we might live through him. Not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. One of the stories in the Bible, I feel, that encapsulates God's love in sharp contrast to, to man's attempts to love is captured in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, verses 11 to 32. And in this story, as some of us might, may already be familiar, uh, there is a man with two sons, one younger and one older. And the younger son says to the father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And his father, who would have been really humiliated and disrespected and in a way, if we ask for property from our parents before they even depart this world, it will be really disrespectful to the dad. He then goes upon, nevertheless, to divide his property and give his younger son his due. His son, his son then goes away and squanders it and eventually gets into a famine and realizes that he needed, needed to do something to survive. So he gets hired and then is left grazing and begging for food. He then has this epiphany moment saying, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In other words, he says, I've sinned against you, father. Don't take me back home as your son. Let me suffer and let me work in the outside and outside of your courts as an outsider of your family. Let me work my way back home. And on the other hand, we have the older brother who has uh, been obedient all the while, diligently sticking to all the routines, honoring the father, but only to get upset when the father decides to honor and celebrate the younger son who's coming home. The son is furious. He goes on disowning the father the very same way that the younger brother disowned him in the front end of the story. He says, but this son of yours, and when we speak like that, generally we want to distance or disassociate ourselves with the person that we're talking to, but this son of yours who came and has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? In other words, really, Father, this is how you honor my love for you. This is how you honor my faithfulness towards you. And I think in many ways, the older and the younger brother are often ways that we tend to love God. For some of us, we are like the younger brother. We are like squanderers coming home, feeling really far removed from God, unworthy of his love, and we decide to work our way back. We pray more, we serve more, we make every effort there is under the sun to erase our own shame and guilt. For others of us, we, we love like the older brother who is diligent in his service for God, so we stay the course, we pray, we read scripture. Yet when God is so moved to call a sinner home, or when God lavishes his grace and his favor to a person that we may not like. We begin to become angry, dissatisfied. We forget the gift of grace that we ourselves have received and continue to receive, exposing that our love actually is not really so much for the Father and his glory as he lavishes his grace out to others, but really about loving the gifts that the Father gives. That's what human love tends to look like, often really centered around ourselves. So let's contrast that now against God's love, 
who is the source of love himself. In Luke 15 of the same story, scripture says, while he, this is the younger brother, the one that uh, has demanded his inheritance and then squandered it in reckless living, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is the father that was disrespected, yet while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Which really reminds me of this verse in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates, he puts on grand display, his love for us in that while we were yet sinners or still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, in the abiding but not so abiding older brother, the father says, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. And this is the brother that disown his dad or distance his dad. This is one of the disassociate with his dad. And he didn't do the same. He didn't disassociate himself or put him in his place. His, older, his, his father instead drew him near, pulled him close, reminded him of who he was. You are always with me. All that I have, all that is mine is yours. And so whether we love like the younger brother or the older brother, or maybe some of us are like the middle-aged brother that kind you know, swings within, between the younger and the older, depending on what the situation is. This is how God defines love for us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is the source of love. And I think John was so moved and he deeply recognized this reality and impact, and it impacted his heart so profoundly that he prompted him to write this words, these words in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See the kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And I think if we go about our living in our day-to-day and the ways in which we engage the world and keep this worse on the forefront of our mind, when we deal with people that might be difficult for us to deal with, when it's hard to love somebody and there's so much pressure and temptation that we face on a day-to-day basis, I think remembering this worse and having it in the forefront of our minds will really change the way in which we respond. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The second point, the power to love. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I realize that I'm falling short of uh, some standard, I tend to respond in two distinct ways. It's either I fix it or I flee. But when we think about it, either one of these responses are really rooted in the belief that you know, I can actually do something about it, and therefore I'm going to try to fix it, or I absolutely have no power to do anything about it, and therefore I flee. And both of these responses are really bound to or tied to or intertwined with myself, my capability, my ability to do something, my capacity, my skill. So let me share with you a, a personal example um, uh, with you. And, and uh, so as, as some of you know, me and Bethany have been married for, for five years and Bethany and I argue sometimes. 
And uh, one of the reasons that we argue is because I don't really tend to listen really well. Uh, neither do I ask questions to really, really show interest. And uh, this is especially true when I come back from work uh, on a day that I had a long day and I'm tired. And so I sit on the couch and we have conversations and I find myself nodding and saying things like, oh yeah, yeah, that's good, fantastic. Oh, okay, wow, okay, good, fantastic, right? But I'm really not, not there, I'm not quite present. I'm totally somewhere else. My mind's probably still at work or my mind's probably thinking about the clouds because I need to relax and I need to unplug. Now my wife, uh, like uh, a lot of wives, I believe, they have the special uh, sixth sense. They know, uh, she knows that I'm not listening and, and she has no problem sometimes calling me out on it. And so what do I do? I begin to pay more attention. I start to try really hard to listen better. I try to stay more engaged. I even like throw a few questions in there. Oh, what about this? And what about that? And what was your experience there? You know, so we try to find our way around not being falling, having fallen short of some standard that we feel we should have lived up to. Now, what I've come to realize about this approach is that the longest that I can really sustain this new pattern of behavior is probably three or four days, maybe one week uh, if I'm lucky, but generally I tend to circle back to the original behavior, my original state of disengagement. And I think in many ways, the apostle Paul recognized this within himself and acknowledged this about human weaknesses when he spoke about our capacity to retain the treasure of the gospel. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, but we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We know that jars of clay is really not durable. They leak and they cannot hold as much. And even as they hold as much, they start to overflow. And if you push them too hard, they break, they crack. They have only a finite capacity to hold and to retain. But God's word also says that while we have this treasure in jars of clay, it is to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. While we have a finite capacity to hold and to retain, it is to show that God has the infinite capacity to fill. It is to show that his grace is sufficient for us. His power is made perfect in weakness. It is really to give us the opportunity then to therefore boast all the more gladly in our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. Today's text in 1 John 4 verse 13 also makes it very clear that our ability to abide in Christ is really contingent upon the empowering of the Holy Spirit. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. The Holy Spirit, the power of Christ, empowers our Christian living. My last point for this morning, the application of love. One of the things that I find really interesting as I was reading through the book of 1 John is that the command to love your brother is mentioned repeatedly several times over and over and over again in the entirety of that book. And one of the reasons I think we can deduce this to be the case in terms of why John is raising this up a number of times 
is because there wasn't really a lot of love that was going around. There even were, in fact, various degrees of unlove or even hate. And I think this can also easily be true for, for our church in our setting, in our congregation here today. None of us can really escape this reality of unlove or hate in our own hearts. None of us are really immune from this disease. There's no vaccine that has been developed to date that can really help us with this ailment. Now, I don't think any of us really wakes up in the morning with uh, the desire or the intention to really make it our personal mission to go and not love people and hate on people. But just like the story of Cain and Abel that Michael shared a couple of weeks ago, sin is crouching at the door. And if we don't rule over it, sin has a way to creep in and devour and find expression in the form of our actions in our day-to-day -day lives. There was a similar situation that was faced in the church in Corinth, and this church was actually plagued with division. And the way the Apostle Paul deals with the matter can give us some insight in terms of how this unlove or this inability to love really takes place. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 3, Paul talks about the difference between spiritual milk and solid food. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready. For you are still in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? From this text, I think it's clear that our inability to love really is rooted in our walking in the flesh, taking the form of jealousy and strife, which then kind of hampers our growth in Christ. And so I think the question for us here this morning is where are we as individuals and as a church on this? Where are we on unhealthily comparing ourselves to others, on cultivating jealousy and strife in our own hearts, as well as encouraging that in the hearts of others? And I think these are really important questions for us to ask ourselves and invite God into and ask him to illuminate our hearts and our minds and to show us. And if there's things that we need to repent of, then to move in that direction. Now let's circle back to the text that we are talking about today and see what God has to say about loving our brothers and sisters in 1 John chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, and then 20 to 21. His word says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, and if no one has ever seen God, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We love one another because God first loved us. God's word says, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. And as we love one another, that who we can tangibly see, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We begin to emulate Christ and become more and more Christ-like 
Because as he is, verse 17 says, so also are we in this world. We begin to lose our fears, for fears has to do with punishment. And we can rest assured in the reality that our punishment has been atoned for or taken care of by our faithful and loving Savior on that cross, which then frees us to be faithful. It frees us to be loving all the more. Church, I think the, the awesome thing about loving one another whom we can see is that Christ, who we cannot see, all, becomes all the more clearer for you and for me. And this clarity of Christ is not so much just for the church itself, but it's also for the benefit of the millions that have yet to know him, that have yet to encounter him and know his saving power and experience his transformative grace. Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A couple of days ago, I actually had a conversation uh, with a colleague of mine at work and we were sitting uh, over coffee. And as we talked, he decided to share a really interesting uh, concept. He said that if civilization was to collapse one day, all our human constructs would be meaningless. Things like the rule of law and social norms and things like corporations and buildings, all these things he says would be irrelevant. And his point was really to tell me, or at least to highlight that human beings are actually pretty insignificant. That the only thing that would really matter in those times or that would really have the rule of day in that context was the law of nature that the law, of, and what the law of nature really means is the survival of the fittest. And so we will go about gathering food. We'll go about sharing that with our families. We'll go about giving extras that we have to those in need. And we would probably pick up arms to defend against robbers and thieves, which in hindsight tells us that there's something different than the law of nature that's at work. But that really wasn't his point. He really wanted to say that we need to be stronger. We need to be tougher. We need to be smarter. We need to be wiser. We just really need to survive. And in some ways, funny enough, I, I agree with him. If survival was our only goal, then we will need to be all these things. But if love is our goal, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself, then we need not necessarily be any of these things. In fact, it might mean that we might not even survive. We see that reflected in the life of our savior. Jesus's goal when he came to earth was not so much to survive, but it was to love, to rescue, to restore which is why I believe scripture tells us to live is Christ and to die is gain. And to shift from this survival to love, the scripture reading from this morning reminds us from Ezekiel 11 verses 19 to 20. This is what God says, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from the flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, that they will be my people 
and I will be their God. God removes our hearts of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. Church, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7 reminds us, what do we have that we did not first receive? We are called to love and we are called to love by recognizing God as the source of love, leaning into the Holy Spirit for the power to love and putting into practice the application of love. Not that we have loved God, but that he first loved us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for who you are. Lord, we thank you for your word, the ways in which you remind us of your reality, that you are God, that you are king, that, are you, that you are our redeemer, that you are our strength, that, Lord, all things fall together in you, that all things were created by you, for you, and through you. And Lord, even as you are God, you still care for us. You made yourself known to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Not that we love God, but that you love us. And God, we ask that you will help us recognize you more and more as the source of love. Lord, that you will give us the courage to lean into you and to the power of your spirit so that we can live in a manner worthy of your calling in our lives. And God, that you'll give us the focus and the clarity to continue to walk and apply your word in our lives each day. God, we are lost without you. Apart from you, God, we can do nothing. There's nothing in this world that can ever satisfy us apart from you and a relationship from you. So God, we pray that you would do that work in our hearts in our minds, and help us be your witnesses. Help us see Christ in one another, but also help us demonstrate your love to a world in great need. We submit ourselves to you this morning, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.